War and Peace, Book 11, Chapter 19, Read for LibriVox.org, by Jeff. Chapter 19 Kutuzov's order to retreat through Moscow at the Rising Road was issued at night on the 1st of September. The first troops started once, and during the night they marched slowly and steadily without hurry. At daybreak, however, those nearing the town at the Darogamalev Bridge saw ahead of them masses of soldiers crowding and hurrying across the bridge, ascending on the opposite side and blocking the streets and alleys, while endless masses of troops were bearing down on them from behind. And an unreasoning hurry and alarm overcame them. They all rushed forward to the bridge, onto it, and to the force and the boats. Kutuzov himself had driven round by side streets to the other side of Moscow. By ten o'clock in the morning of the 2nd of September, only the rear guard remained in the Dargamalev suburb, where they had ample room. The main army was on the other side of Moscow or beyond it. At that very time, at ten in the morning of the 2nd of September, Napoleon was standing among his troops on the Paclone Hill looking at the panorama spread out before him. From the 26th of August to the 2nd of September, that is, from the Battle of Borodino to the entry of the French into Moscow, during the whole of that agitating memorable week, there had been the extraordinary autumn weather that always comes as a surprise. When the sun hangs low and gives more heat than in spring, when everything shines so brightly in the rear clear atmosphere that the eyes smart, when the lungs are strengthened and refreshed by inhaling the aromatic autumn air, when even the nights are warm, and when in those dark warm nights, golden stars startle and delight us continually by falling from the sky. At ten in the morning of the 2nd of September, this weather still held. The brightness of the morning was magical. Masical, seen from the Paclone Hill, lay spaciously spread out with her river, her gardens, and her churches. And she seemed to be living her usual life, the cupolas glittering like stars in the sunlight. The view of the strange city with its peculiar architecture, such as he had never seen before, filled Napoleon with his rather envious and uneasy curiosity men feel when they see an alien form of life that has no knowledge of them. This city was evidently living with the full force of its own life, by the indefinite signs which, even at a distance, distinguish a living body from a dead one. Napoleon from the Paclone Hill perceived the throb of life in the town, and felt, as it were, the breathing of that great and beautiful body. Every Russian looking at Moscow feels her to be a mother, every foreigner who sees her, even if ignorant of her significance as the mother city, must feel her feminine character, and Napoleon feels it. That Asiatic city of the innumerable churches, holy Moscow, here it is, then at last, the famous city, it was high time, said he. And dismounting, he ordered the plain of Moscow to be spread out before him, and summoned Lalorni de Devil, the interpreter. A tongue captured by the enemies like a maid who has lost her honor, thought he. 
had said so to Tarkov at Smolensk. From that point of view, he gazed at the oriental beauty he had now seen before. It seemed strange to him that his long-felt wish, which had seemed attainable, had at last been realized. In the clear morning light, he gazed now at the city and now at the plain, considering its details, and the assurance of possessing it agitated and awed him. But could it be otherwise, he thought. Here is the capital at my feet. Where is Alexander now? And of what he sees thinking. A strange, beautiful and majestic city, and a strange and majestic moment. In what light must I appear to them, thought he, thinking of his troops. Here she is, the reward for all those faint-hearted men, he reflected, glancing at those near him and at the troops who were approaching and forming up. One word from me, one movement of my hand and that the ancient capital of the Tsars would perish. But my clemency is always ready to descend upon the vanquished. It must be magnanimous and truly great. But no, it can't be true that I am in Moscow, he suddenly thought. Yet here she is lying at my feet, with her golden domes and crosses, scintillating and twinkling in the sunshine. But I shall spare her on the ancient monuments of barbarism and despotism, I will inscribe great words of justice and mercy. It is just this Alexander will feel most painfully. I know him. It seemed to Napoleon that the chief import of what was taking place lay in the personal struggle between himself and Alexander. From the height of the Kremlin, yes, there is the Kremlin, yes, I will give them just the laws. I will teach them the meaning of true civilization. I will make generations of boyars remember their conqueror with love. I will tell the deputation that I did not and do not desire war, that I have waged the war only against the false policy of their court, that I love and respect Alexander, and that in Moscow I will accept terms of peace worthy of myself and of my people. I do not wish to utilize the fortunes of war to humiliate an honored monarch. Boyars, I will say to them, I do not desire war. I desire the peace and welfare of my subjects. However, I know their presence will inspire me, and I shall speak to them as I always do, clearly, impressively, and majestically. But can it be true that I am in Moscow? Yes, there she lies. Bring the boyars to me, said he to his suite. A general with a brilliant suite glapped off at once to fetch the boyars. Two hours passed. Napoleon had a lunch and was again standing in the same place on the Pakloni Hill, awaiting the deputation. His speech to the boyars had already taken definite shape in his imagination. That the speech was full of dignity and greatness as Napoleon understood it. He was himself carried away by the tone of magnanimity he intended to adopt toward Moscow. In his imagination, he appointed days for assemblies at the palace of the Tsars, at which Russian notables and his own would mingle. He mentally appointed a governor, one who would win the hearts of the people. Having learned that there were many charitable institutions in Moscow, 
He mentally decided that he would shower favor on them all. He felt that as in Africa, he had to put on a burnoose and sit in a mosque. He must be beneficent like the Tsars. And in order to finally to touch the hearts of the Russians, and being like all Frenchmen, unable to imagine anything sentimental without a reference to Marcel, Matenda, Mapova Mia, he decided that he would place an inscription on all these establishments in large letters. This establishment is dedicated to my dear mother. Well, no, it should be simply, Maison de Mamia. He concluded, "But am I really Moscow? Yes, here it lies before me. But why is the deputation from the city so long in appearing?" He wondered. Meanwhile, an agitated consultation was being carried on in whispers among his general and marshals at the rear of his suite. Those sent to fetch the deputation had returned with the news that the Moscow was empty, that everyone had left it. The faces of those who were not conferring together were pale and perturbed. They were not alarmed by the fact that Moscow had been abandoned by its inhabitants, grave as the fact seemed, but by the question how to tell the emperor, without putting him in the terrible position of appearing ridiculous, that he had been waiting the boyar so long in vain, that there were drunk mobs left in Moscow but no one else. Some said that a deputation of some sort must be scraped together. Others disputed that opinion and maintained that the emperor should first be carefully and skillfully prepared and then told the truth. He would have to be told all the same," said some gentlemen of the suite. But gentlemen, the position was the more awkward because the emperor, meditating upon his magnanimous plans. Was pacing patiently up and down before the outspread map, occasionally glancing along the road to Moscow from under his lifted hand with a bright and proud smile. But it's impossible," declared the gentlemen of the suite, shrugging their shoulders, but not venturing to utter the implied word of ridicule. At last, the emperor, tired of futile expectation. His actor's instinct suggesting to him that the sublime moment had been too long drawn out was beginning to lose its sublimity. Gave a sign with his hand, a single report of the signaling gun followed, and the troops who were already spread out on different sides of Moscow, moved into the city through Ver, Kaluga, and Dargomolev gates, faster and faster, vying with one another. They moved at the double or at a trot. Vanishing amid the clouds of dust, they raced and making the air ring with the deafening roar of mingled shouts. Joined on by the movement of his troops, Napoleon rode with them as far as the Dargomolev gate, but there again stopped and, dismounting from his horse, paced for a long time by the Kamerkolaski rampart, awaiting the deputation. End of chapter nineteen.